Hi, I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a series of short, personal, real true stories where we explore the idea that truth can be stranger than fiction. This week's episode is entitled, My Dad, the Mariner. My Dad, the Mariner. This is a Father's Day tribute from my father, who passed away long ago. It's stitched together from bits and pieces of remembrances and tales of the sea that he shared with me throughout our life together. Some were told to me when I was a wee lad, whom he called Laddie Buck, the others when he was at the end of his life. In my early teens, he loaned me his tattered sea journals, which I reread so many times that some sections I knew by heart. While writing his story, I've come to the realization that when he was in his late teens, he was a chance taker, a troublemaker, and a wise guy, just like me. My father liked to say that he ran away to sea, but he didn't run away at all. He was accepted into the New York State Merchant Marine Academy along with his best friend when they were both 18 years old. My father's first name was William, and he liked to call himself Willie. His best friends in the academy was also named William, and he called himself Billy. So Willie and Billy made their maiden voyage together on the Merchant Marine Academy's four-masted schooner, which left Boston June 5, 1935, and crossed the Atlantic back and forth. He shared little about this cruise, possibly because he was kept very busy doing double duty as both a student of seafaring and as a cadet learning all aspects of running a ship. I still have a beautiful old leather-bound volume with an impressive spine, raised gold linework, and incised gold title lettering, which looks very much like a law book, but is actually a textbook from the Merchant Marine Academy. Although it contains no stories of the high seas, there's a nice poetic cadence to some of the chapter headings. Great circle charts, stars and planets, the moon's phases and tidal effects, aerial navigation, and the sextant, the chronometer, and the gyro compass. I've searched high and low, but sadly cannot find the other volume, which is much more important to me. It bore on its front piece his carefully inscribed pencil drawing of the first commercial vessel he shipped out on, with the vessel's name below, along with a quote by the ancient Roman philosopher Seneca. If one does not know to which port one is sailing, no wind is favorable. This and his tattered sea journals are sadly gone for good after a lifetime of my moving around from place to place. The commercial vessel they shipped out on was a freighter that traveled back and forth between New York Harbor on the Hudson all the way around the world to Bombay Harbor. As they passed the Statue of Liberty, Willie said, it kind of chokes you up, doesn't it? And Billy replied, nary a dry eye in the house. Then they entered the vast gray Atlantic, where the ocean swells caused the ship to pitch and roll interminably from side to side, not letting up until Gibraltar. Willie was a compulsive storyteller who enlivened life on deck, always ready with a story or a joke 
making him popular with the other crew members. Billy was a straight man, his Sancho Panza. When they first boarded the vessel, they were told by some old-timers that the ship had long been haunted. Willie laughed, saying, Ah, yes, sea yarns. And Billy responded, Tall tales, no doubt. But during their time on board, they did discover that there were strange apparitions on various decks and walls and rigging, particularly after a storm. Most of the unseasoned crew members got sick, or Green Guild, as they called it, the first day out of New York Harbor. The ship's cook, who was called Cookie, an unlikely name for a true sadist, would force all the seasick recruits who were retching over the stern railing to turn around and stand at attention facing him. He would then proceed to swallow a chunk of lard tied to a length of cord. When he pulled it up and out of his mouth, the Green Guild neophytes would turn back to the railing and throw up so violently they got the dry heaves. Cookie barked out, What a bunch of pathetic pussies. This was done with the whole able-bodied crew jeering and laughing. To make matters worse, what they vomited into the sea was fought over by a swarm of gulls following the ship. Billy was as sick as anybody, but not my dad. Their Atlantic crossing was particularly treacherous. Gray clouds and choppy seas plagued them all the way across, interrupted by violent storms with thunder and lightning so low it seemed to engulf the ship itself. As they passed the Rock of Gibraltar, Willie said, What a relief. Billy responded, Clear sailing from here on out. Everyone on board breathed a sigh of relief as they entered the Mediterranean. Sunny skies and puffy fair-weather clouds overhead and a gentle sea below. The great white and blue sharks following the ship are now joined by tiger sharks languidly patrolling the stern wash. Cookie's sadism seemed to blossom in the balmy Mediterranean. One of his new tricks was to throw a cord with a piece of lard at either end up into the flock of seagulls trailing the ship. The two seagulls who swallowed the bait at either end would fall into the sea, only to be devoured by the sharks. He would also throw dinner scraps and spoiled food over the stern. And when a shark surfaced to eat, happily shoot one with a rifle and watch while the others fought over the scraps of shark meat in the bloody feeding frenzy below. Sometimes he would go even further. To amuse himself, he would send a couple sailors down on wobbly rope ladders with gaff hooks to snag pieces of shark to be eaten that night by the crew for dinner. If a sailor fell in, that would be the end of him. All the other deckhands watched this exercise in horror, knowing that their turn would soon come to dangle over the savage shark feedings. No one was eaten on this crossing, but some of the old-timers had other tales to tell. Willie, not my idea of a good time. Billy, I don't want to be anyone's lunch. Once the ship passed through the Suez Canal, and beyond that, into the Indian Ocean, Willie and Billy had their first almost fatal adventure. The ocean was calm and glassy, as if it were liquid mercury. Then some dark clouds appeared on the horizon, and funneling down from them were four different water spouts. The first mate came over the PA system, commanding the entire crew to move to their emergency stations while the captain joined him in the wheelhouse. Because there was no prevailing wind, each water spout headed in a different direction, and the ship had to thread its way through the watery obstacle course. Willie and Billy hunkered down and hugged. Willie, 
This may be it, brother. Billy, it's been great knowing you. And then they both sobbed. When the first water spout struck the ship, the crew braced themselves. But it turned out to be nothing more than a swirl of mist and water, no more dangerous than a soaking from a lawn sprinkler. The captain and first mate came on the PA system and both laughed loud and long. And that was that. As they crossed the Indian Ocean, the ship lost its propeller, and it took days for a seagoing tug to arrive and tow them to Bombay, where they were moored with nothing to do. When the crew ran out of chores, they started quarreling regularly, and the captain began giving them more and more shore leave. That's when their troubles really began. It started when a group of crew members, including Willie and Billy, got drunk and stole an expensive Bentley convertible. While joyriding, They hit and killed a sacred cow. This led to their arrest, brief imprisonment, and subsequent trial. Their English lawyer successfully bribed an Indian judge. In the courtroom, there was a section reserved for law students to observe the trials and learn. When the innocent verdict was read out loud, all the students began to chant, The judge has been had. The judge has been had. The judge has been had. The crew members and their attorney made a hasty exit. The Indian tabloids couldn't get enough of the story. Meanwhile, Willie and Billy were organizing a very unlawful enterprise of their own. On the dock, three young Indian men in their 20s had offered them $100 apiece for as many pistols as they could bring back from their next trip to New York. Knowing that pistols in New York could be acquired for as little as $5 apiece, this seemed like an incredible financial opportunity. When the new propeller was installed, the ship was loaded with a cargo of wild animals, mostly primates, monkeys, orangutans, and chimps, along with some huge fruit bats. It was smooth sailing until they encountered a heavy storm, and most of the animals escaped when their canvas-covered wooden cages broke loose and were smashed up on the deck. The monkeys took to the rigging, but the biggest orangutan ended up in the ship's kitchen, whereupon Cookie, being Cookie, entered the room alone, baseball bat in hand, and took on the ape. It was a long battle with lots of pots and pans sound effects, but in the end, Cookie prevailed, killing the poor creature. The crew declined Cookie's invitation to join him in eating the remains. Over time, all the monkeys got hungry, and they were easily caught on deck and re-caged. Before that, the net after the storm with the monkeys still climbing around above, the fabled ghost apparitions appeared once more around the upper deck and on the walls of the forecastle below. Willie, flying monkeys and ghosts? Billy, who would ever believe it? The ghosts appeared only after a storm, and the apparitions were always upside down, which gave Willie an idea. Maybe all the stories of the ship being haunted were really just the result of a giant camera obscura the lens of which projected the figures moving around on the foredeck against the walls and floors of the aft deck. It just took Willie and Billy half an hour as the images danced above to find the source, a small hole in a metal bracket on the upper rigging filled with water and became the lens. Mystery solved. But after a demonstration to the assembled crew, 
With Billy passing his hand in front of the lens and turning the ghosts on and off again, the old-timers were unimpressed. No way a bunch of scientific mumbo-jumbo was going to dissuade anyone that this ship wasn't haunted. Their boat retraced its course back to New York, and they encountered many of the same events as on the way out, but now the newest crew members were no longer afraid. When they finally sailed into New York Harbor and the customs inspectors arrived on board, they announced that the fruit bats were illegal cargo. Each bat could consume 25 pounds of fruit a day, which could devastate America's fruit harvest should a pair escape and reproduce. The inspectors proceeded to lower the bat cage on a line into the sea, drowning all of the bats. Cookie looked on with a smile. Once on shore leave, Willie and Billy got to work collecting their pistols. They discovered that Canal Street and the dark alleyways around Times Square were the best places to buy. And after some negotiation, five to $10 was the going rate. They filled two heavy suitcases with their precious cargo. Arriving back on board, they climbed the gangplank with the suitcases of contraband while the crew looked on. Willie said, damn, I'm not comfortable with everybody knowing. Billy responded, hey, in for a penny, in for a pound. On the next voyage to India, their ship left with a cargo of American-made farm machinery. Their passage was pretty much a carbon copy of the first, with fair weather and no surprises once they got out of the North Atlantic. The silvery Indian Ocean was just as spectacular as on their first trip. When they docked in Bombay Harbor and were preparing to go ashore, the captain surprised them. He discovered a minor mistake in Willie's work on board and denied him shore leave. So Billy went into Bombay alone, successfully making contact with the gun buyers. Returning to the ship, Quinn, the second mate, volunteered to go along as backup when Billy made the drop. He joined in purely for the adventure of it. And so it was that Billy and Quinn headed down the gangplank, bearing their two heavy suitcases, never to be seen again. It took several days for the ship to reload, and during that time the captain contacted the local police, who took no interest in a couple of errant seamen who seemingly jumped ship. He even let Willie go ashore to look for Billy and Quinn, which was a fool's mission, since he had no idea where the meeting had taken place. My dad was numb with grief and guilt on the whole trip back to New York. How could he and Billy have been so stupid and naive as to think that a group of revolutionaries trying to overthrow the government of India would actually honor their business agreement to pay for the guns. They no doubt simply murdered his friends. Throughout the voyage, Willie kept talking to Billy. Willie, I'm so sorry, Billy. I wish I'd, I wish I'd been the one to go on shore instead of you. There was, of course, no response from Billy. Arriving back in New York, still brokenhearted, Willie resigned from the Merchant Marines and took a job with a telephone company. A lifetime later, when my father passed away at 86 years of age, he requested that his ashes be spread into the sea 
at Vero Beach, Florida, where he lived. Even at that age, his sense of humor had not left him. He called the place Zero Beach because nothing ever happened there. My two sisters and I, along with his second wife, Winnie, and my nephew, attended the sunrise ceremony. It was a spectacular morning with golden shafts of sunlight fanning out in all directions through a dramatic bank of cumulonimbus clouds above the ocean horizon line. He had requested that Tennyson's poem, Crossing the Bar, be read at his ceremony. Sunset, an evening star, and one clear call for me. And may there be no moaning of the bar when I put out to sea. Twilight, an evening bell, and after that the dark. And may there be no sadness of farewell when I embark. For thou from out art born of time and place, the flood may bear me far. I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar. So I wish you a happy Father's Day, Dad, wherever you may be. The Compulsive Storyteller is written and narrated by me, Greg Lefebvre, and co-produced with Peter Kokoma, who's also made our theme song. If you enjoyed this week's episode, we'd love your help sharing the show. Please subscribe to The Compulsive Storyteller for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And also, if you could leave a review, that would be fantastic. Follow the show on Instagram, at The Compulsive Storyteller, and check out our website for more information at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. Thanks for listening, and if you don't like this one, the next one will be another story. The characters and events portrayed in this podcast are based on my truth, with some names and facts changed for privacy. All conversations and dialogues are based on my best memory, but are not word-for-word recreations.